should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us here on this Wednesday, September 6th. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. The Michelle Miao Show is your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. I hope that uh, since after President Trump tweeted out his announcement that he was ending the DACA program, and then Jeff Sessions announcing it for the rest of America for him, I hope that some of us are finding uh, ways to collaborate and stand in solidarity with one another Definitely, this is now the time to fight, to fight back, and to think of so many ways in which we can resist Donald Trump. Um, I'm making that very, very clear here on the program. The end of DACA impacts almost 800,000 people, and these people immigrated here as children as young as two years old uh, uh, and are now adults who, uh, you know, have lived here their entire life. And so DACA, in which President Obama had enacted during his presidency, was meant to give an opportunity for these undocumented immigrants to go to school, go to work, and find a way by navigating our immigration system. Obviously, it needs some work. It needs some reform. And so, you know, there, there are these questions that keep popping up like, well, you know, should we have DACA or should we not? Was it legal or was it illegal? Meanwhile, these are human lives that we are talking about. And so whether it was legal or illegal to take away a program that was meant to um, empower and also help, uh, you know, these people who have lived here all their lives and being a part of America – I think it's like horrific. It's just cruel, as as President Obama said. And I don't think that ending the program, because you you argue that we need something that is more legal to do it, is the right thing to do. I think it's insensitive. I think that if you actually had a backbone, if you actually were a leader and you were compassionate, you would think about how in what ways you would strengthen uh, the immigration system here in this country so that you know, we're not, we're not hurting people. We're not advocating for people to leave this country just because of a circumstance. Uh, this president has talked a lot about uh, undocumented immigrants as if they're criminals, but criminals in the sense of like really violent crimes. Um, and, and now we have everyday people who are saying that, well, they were criminals to begin with because they came into this country illegally. Let's continue our conversation about DACA and what it means and what is our path forward. 
here with us to talk about DACA is Will Draybold. He is the policy writer as well as the author of Navigating Trump's America at Mike.com. Let's welcome Will to the program. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so, yeah, as I was saying, I thought it would be great to have you back on since you've been following, you know, Donald Trump as close as you can, or at least uh, writing a bunch of articles that make sense to a lot of us and trying to navigate Trump's America. So now another bombshell now affect dreamers, undocumented immigrant, we should say, you know, they were children when they immigrated here with their uh, with their parents. Uh, and DACA gave an extended opportunity for people, undocumented people, to go to school and also work. And so that program is coming to an end under President Trump. Uh, Will, talk to us about what you're finding when you're talking about how this will impact the dreamers. So we, we know that when it ends, there are some legal things that will happen. But what are you hearing out there? Yeah, well, I, I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of facets and elements to this, as you were kind of alluding to. Um, obviously, the most direct one is the real people who are going to be affected by this, um, up to about eight hundred thousand people. Um, and then there's also a concern. It's worth mentioning. Uh, temporary protected status was not talked about yesterday, but that's another program that a lot of people in the immigrant rights and advocacy community fear could be ended or. Um, at least delayed by the Trump administration. So when you put all that together, you've got more than a million people in this country who are very worried um, that their their program is going to go away or, or know in the case of DACA that it will in six months if Congress doesn't take action. Um, as you were talking about, I mean, they, I mean, that can mean people actually get deported in six months. Um, because they're not in this country legally and they don't have the legal status to work here, live here, study here, even though the average age um, of DACA recipients when they came to the U.S. was like five or six years old. Um, the average age of them now, I believe, is maybe mid-20s to 30. Um, so you have people who have lived here, right, for decades, literally, and this is, this is the country they know. So obviously there's a huge amount of Sadness, frustration, anger among that community. Um, Trump actually, uh, yesterday, um, because the backlash was so fierce, said, you know, Congress, you've got to do something on this. And, you know, if not, I'll revisit this in six months or something like that, seeming to potentially allude to him maybe going back on his own decision. But again, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just way too early to know what that means. Um, But yeah, the, the upshot is the upshot is that there's a lot of people in limbo right now. Uh, your most recent article um, I thought was very, very interesting, and you asked constitutional scholars if DACA is in fact legal. I mean, President Trump had mentioned that, uh, and not just uh, Trump, but also a few other politicians, if you will, or legislators who argued that, you know, when President Obama enacted this program, he did it by an executive order, and that isn't constitutional. Uh, so what did what did what were your findings after asking constitutional scholars if DACA is in fact legal? Yeah, this is a, it's a good it's a good question because to be clear, there's not like a hundred percent consensus one way or the other here, right? So you have people who, of course, it's going to be hard to separate the politics and the policy feelings from the law. But I tried to do that as much as possible, and some of these guys even admitted that was difficult. Basically, there's two camps. There's one that says the president of the United States can exercise quote prosecutorial discretion, end quote. What that means is that 
um, President Obama, in this example, was able to single out now up to more than 800 or about 800,000 people and say, I am deciding not to deport you. I am deciding that I will not pursue charges, so to speak, which in this case would be immigration charges removing them from the country for coming here illegally as children. Um, I, I will not pursue that. So that's his discretion as the executive to do that. that. That's one camp that says that makes DACA legal. Another camp that says, okay, that part of it we get, but you're also giving them the ability to live here, work here, study here, and, and that goes against the law passed by Congress. Therefore, the executive, the president, does not have the right to do that. This is obviously the argument Jeff Sessions and Donald Trump made. Uh, the executive does not have the authority to do that. Therefore, DACA is illegal. And, and I actually had a couple people tell me they like DACA as a policy, but they thought from a constitutional law background, mm -hmm. it just did not square with, uh, with the law. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. There's some, a couple of questions that came up. Um, you know, someone had made a point that President Obama enacted DACA back in uh, 2014 or a few years ago, or at least when he was in office. So prior to DACA, there for a lot of people, they're unsure what program did exist, but undocumented immigrants did, in fact, live here. Um, you know, is it is it is it possible to have another policy that's better than DACA? Yes. Is it possible for undocumented immigrants to continue being undocumented here in this country and working and living? Probably. But there are really, really bad consequences to their livelihood, um, you know, and I think by covering this story, you would agree. So, so that may, there's a couple things to unpack there, actually. I mean, so first of all, yeah, I mean, there's been the DREAM Act was introduced in 2001, and then that was basically the legislation that is now before Congress again, which would give people the... Um, legal right to stay in this country if they came here as children. Um, that's why you hear people who are DACA recipients often referred to as dreamers because um, they would be covered by that law. Obviously, that bill has not passed. There's a push to make that go through Congress right now. So what Obama did when, when he announced this in 2011, implemented in 2012, or, or, or sorry, I guess both happened in 2012, um, the program was basically him moving to do parts of what the DREAM Act would do just through executive action. So, so there were, you know, again, hundreds of thousands of people who came out of the shadows, so to speak, and gave mm -hmm. the government their information and, and signed up for all these things, started paying into Social Security and got jobs legally and all these things, went to college and everything, right, because of DACA. Um, so before that, they could not do that at least legally. They cannot do it without jumping through a lot of hoops. And actually, um, it was interesting because yesterday I was covering a march in D.C. and I was doing a Facebook Live and there were a lot of people commenting on it because um, this was a group of people protesting in front of the White House and they went to the Trump Hotel in Washington and, you know, they were obviously very angry with the decision. And there were people commenting, um, I think one of the comments that stood out to me was a guy who kept saying, DACA is just an excuse for immigrants to um, bring their children into the country and put them on welfare, get them free stuff, whatever. And, and it's really important to understand that that is just objectively not, not true for a few reasons. First of all, um, to even receive DACA, so you have to come in before you were 16, 
you have to either serve in the military or have have education here, and you have to have no criminal record. So basically, you have to prove you will be an upstanding member of society in the U.S. or already are to even get DACA, which obviously no one who's born here has to jump through those hoops, right? So it's kind of important to understand that. And then the other thing, a statistic um, I saw yesterday, again, I think is really useful when you're talking about this, is um, less than half of half a percent um, of people who have been in the DACA program have committed any kind of crime, have have lost their DACA status for committing a crime. So that's obviously a much lower crime rate than the population in general. So when you look at this community, you say, by and large, educated, working, um, vast majority of them working, actually, um, paying taxes, contributing to Social Security, all those kinds of things. Um, So that's why you saw uh, and continue to see a lot of backlash from people saying this is going to, you know, cost the economy tens of billions of dollars, and then there's other people just saying it's immoral, and then there's other people saying this is this goes against what America is all about because we should welcome immigrants. So it's really put together this kind of incredibly broad coalition of people who are libertarian, some people who are uh, conservative, people, of course, who are progressive, centrist Democrats all over the place. Uh, to, to do something in the wake of Trump deciding to end the program. Mm-hmm. So now here's the question. We asked this yesterday, and we still, we're still we not going to be able to answer it. Like you said earlier, it's just too early to tell. But if Trump's going to throw it into the hands of Congress, I mean, uh, you know, how do you feel about it, having covered uh, Trump's America for the last seven months and getting a feel of how chaotic it is in the White House and even, yes, in Congress? Like, a lot of people don't have... Uh, very much, uh, I guess, uh, optimism of it going anywhere in Congress. I think it's really hard to look at Congress and and have, I think you're right, to have a degree of confidence that this is going to get passed. I mean, it's definitely one of those never-say-never kinds of things, maybe even particularly this issue You've got the six-month deadline. You have a lot of people saying they want to do something about the status of these immigrants. The debates aren't so much about the 800,000. They're more like, you know, should Congress just vote on the bill or should there be a um, should there be funding for the border wall attached to it or what, whatever. I mean, but the problem is, I mean, as you saw with health care, getting Congress to agree in advance on something is really, really hard. Um, and while there is consensus among Democrats, which is kind of a first, that this program is, is good and what it stood for is good, and that maybe even passing the DREAM Act is the right thing to do, it's, it's far from there on the Republican side. And so what that means is potentially someone like Paul Ryan would have to pass something with Democrats and maybe a minority or a small majority of his caucus, it's, which, which is hard to believe. So... There's a lot of work to be done in um, convincing a lot of Republicans to go along with this or maybe appeasing them or compromising with them. Um, but then the thing you got to remember on the progressive side of things, there's a lot of groups who just say, look, dreamers are not bargaining chips. This is the language they use. And we really, really want to have nothing but a clean vote on the DREAM Act and nothing but a vote to just protect the legal status of these immigrants, mm-hmm. and that could that could really put 
leaders of both the Democratic and the Republican um, caucuses in, in Congress in a hard place. The Commonwealth Club of California is the nation's leading public forum engaged with the most important issues of the day. More than 450 times each year, we feature programs on politics, LGBT issues, literature, science, entertainment, and more. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play, watch our videos on YouTube and Facebook, and when you're in the Bay Area, join us in person for our daily programs. Learn more about the club at commonwealthclub.org. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Wednesday, September 6th. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. On the phone with us is Will Draybold, who is the policy reporter for Mike.com. He also writes, Navigating Trump's America at Mike. You know, Will, I mean, some experts have already started weighing in on what the financial repercussions of ending DACA would be if we were to realistically, quote unquote, deport some of the undocumented uh, undocumented immigrants and they'll be undocumented after DACA ends in this six month period. Um, and we're talking like millions and millions of dollars, a lot, a lot of money and, and people saying that Donald Trump did not really think this one through. Um if you look at like how much it actually might be to deport uh, people, and 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 look at you know the amount of money that we'd be missing from their the financial contributions of uh, of of dreamers and and people who benefit from DACA, um, is it even really? I mean, I I just can't even think about a president not uh, thinking this one through and if it's going to be that drastic of a negative impact to our country, he should walk back. Um, what are your thoughts? It, it's such, I mean, it's such just a political question, right? There's this belief that Trump needs to rile up his base, uh, which is now pretty well documented as about a quarter of Americans, give or take a few percent, who are just with him through the end to the end, no matter what he does. Um, 
and that he needs to continue to impress them and appease them. Of course, his approval rating has steadily continued to tick down overall as he's done that. Um, it It's hard to see someone who has repeatedly not gone back on anything they've ever done, apologized for anything, uh, taken back a falsehood, a lie, whatever. Um, it, it's hard to see someone like that walking something like this back. Um, however, there is pretty good documentation that this was a bit of a different decision for him and that while he did this, he, he actually did it because he really did not think that the program was legal. Um, and so maybe in six months um, something will change or maybe before then he'll actually push Congress to do something. And, and there's again, there's reports that he really um, had some heart for these people and, and what they would lose if the program went away. Of course, it's hard to see that or feel that or even believe yeah. it if you're one of the 800,000 um, or you're one of the people advocating for them. Just a few more questions and we'll let you go um, I, because you have a tough job now <laughs> writing, you know, navigating Trump's America. Um, DACA is not the only thing that he's done that we've been, you know, just protesting. I feel like the last seven months feels like 700 years and uh, the president just keeps on making these decisions that impact you know, the entire country, really, almost every American out there has something to say about uh, his presidency and, and some of the negative impacts it's had on their lives. What, how has it impacted you? You know, kind of, uh, you, this is basically your everyday life in covering Trump. Oh, you know, I try to, I try to not, um, try to not look at it so much through that lens or, or that way, I guess. I try to focus more on, you know, that it is a job and I have something to do. And I mean, look, at the end of the day, I'm not someone who um, is really fearing that, you know, frankly, they could be deported or that they lose their health care or something like that as part of these debates. So um, I definitely, definitely defer to those people and, you know, how they're feeling, what they're worried about. Um, and try to get a sense of that as opposed to kind of thinking about myself, if that makes sense. Sure, absolutely. I mean, the media, he's also attacked the media, right? I mean, you know, anything right. that he doesn't uh, like uh, as far as what people are reporting, he'll just call it fake news. Has that impacted what you do at all? Or, I mean, does it actually, do you actually go to bed at night thinking like, um, you know, hey, if if so many people, if your articles become that popular that the the president might retweet or tweet something um, that you wrote, does that scare you at all? You know, the one I, I haven't thought about that that case that hypothetical specifically. I mean, the one thing that is discouraging is when you get people who email you, and it just it's just not based in any reality. Like they will look at whatever you wrote and then they'll just come up with something completely different. Um, and it's discouraging that people aren't, and even seems sometimes willing to take the time to read, willing to take the time to look into the facts to understand. Um, and I have seen that. And unfortunately, I just anecdotally see it from people who also like to put in those messages that they're staunch Trump supporters. Of course, there's people like that on the left, too, but they're not targeting me. I don't hear, hear from them as much. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that is that is discouraging. Yeah. Last question for you. I mean, for people like me who follow your work and who kind of uh, use it, right, for our everyday lives, whether it's um, to be – 
educated or informed or, you know, for my purposes of doing like the show, I mean, what do you want your readers to get out of um, the articles that you know, you're doing for Mike.com as far as like navigating Trump's America? Uh, my take is, you know, a lot of it is get the facts and you're presenting the facts for us. Yeah, um, you know, it was funny, actually. I mentioned that Facebook Live, and I was I kept trying to address some of these commenters, and, and, and there were a lot of people who I was happy to see were commenting, like, you know, it looks like he's just telling us what the heck's going on, and that's it, which is really what I, which is what I want to do, and I don't want to, uh, I really don't want to take a side on, on any of this, because it's just, it's too heated and too emotional, and there's already too many people in many ways on both sides. You need more people, I think, who can honestly evaluate these things and, and talk about them and, and uplift the voices of the people who are being ignored and, you know, kind of take on the people who have a megaphone and who already can get their point of view out there a lot. So, yeah, I mean, I hope, though, that, that at the most basic level, uh, the newsletter and that work is just, it's a place people can just get raw information. And so, for example, today when it's like, what do these legal scholars think of the DACA debate? The goal there was just give people a baseline way to understand what the legal stuff is that's being debated here, because that wasn't really in the dialogue so much uh, the last couple of days, right? There's a lot of emotion, a lot of should the program exist or not. Of course, that's fine. It's very important. In some ways, it's more important. But we also thought, okay, we just need to talk to both sides here and see, you know, whether they think the program's legal or not. And you're trying to find ways to do that kind of thing. Um, as much as possible. Well, I want to thank you so much for the work that you do um, for navigating Trump's America at Mike.com and for joining us this morning and talking about DACA and your report of it. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Well, Dre Bold, everyone, like I said, make sure you check out his work at Mike.com. Don't go away. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, 
Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. You're listening to the Progressive Voices Channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me here on this program. And thanks to Will Draybold and Mike.com. I think navigating Trump's America, what they do there at Mike.com is a great resource. It definitely is like a cup of coffee for me. It's refreshing as well as a just a different lens, you know, a much more factual lens as we were talking to Will about. This is hard work when you're willing to put yourself out there and this is your job in covering this presidency as a volatile and I think the word I want to use is obnoxious as the president is when it comes to the media. So kudos to everyone who's doing their part out there. You know, I had a thought last night about how I felt when, you know, all these pictures show up on your Facebook feed of social activists or politicians or people who go out to protest and they post like selfies of themselves with their signs and their sticks and they're smiling. And I know it's a good thing. It's supposed to resonate some feeling of positivity that community is coming together to fight for these issues that we care about but I don't know if it's a Facebook thing and and not because I'm seeing it from like a, a news article or something but it has impacted me in a way where I feel almost a little bit desensitized as far as like the real meaning of why we're protesting and almost like how can people be happy protesting when we're supposed to be angry? Or I'm, I guess I'm just not understanding what the value of it is yet. Like when you go to a protest and you take a selfie and you upload it and you you post like, oh, you know, this is what I'm doing. And it's all about sharing. And I really shouldn't be critical about what people want to post on their Facebook. And, and that's not the point of the show to criticize what people do on Facebook. But it led me to a thought. It led me to my own personal connection or reflection of what am I supposed to be doing during this time? And so many people have chimed in here on the program that say things like, well, you know, this isn't the first presidency that we've gone through where it's been horrible. I get it. But my reality is that this is actually the first presidency where it is really, really, really horrible. I mean, President Bush was horrible. For a young person like myself, you know, as far as like standing up to my liberal beliefs and values. But President Trump is like a brand new different animal. And within seven months, we've just seen so much regression in a really, really, really short time. So again, the reflection, what am I doing during this time if I am not, you know, one of those who goes out and protests? This show is one of those things that's very true. But I oftentimes will ask myself, like, how do we make real change? Like, how do we get this guy out of office? Like, how do we get some of these people like Jeff Sessions out of office? Um, And many people have chimed in, including Mark Lilla, you know, who was from yesterday's interview, who said that you need to run for office. I have pondered that. I, I get it. I get it from that sense of how much work it will take for someone like myself to actually win if or get elected if we were to run for office. 
But there was somebody else that, you know, many of us have followed or have been reading who has a new documentary out that's opening up here in the Bay Area called Dolores. And that is Dolores Huerta. The way that she was successful was because she was strategic and she stood up to legislators and she was very vocal. She really actually made change that wasn't just from protesting, but it combined all of those elements together to make some real change. So we're going to play an interview that I did with Dolores Huerta on the second half of the show. I think that we all can learn something from Dolores, who just said in an interview that the 60s are back. Enjoy the interview. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me. Everyone is talking about the resistance movement, but there certainly have been many other activists who've come before our time who have been resisting and not only protested, but have done something have had actual strategies in making sure that we continue the fight for equal rights. And one of those people is Dolores Huerta. Let's get to our interview with Dolores Huerta and Peter Bratt. To direct this film, to include a narrative that had been missing in history, and I'm talking about the labor movement, in missing a, the, the key or the real honest truth of who Dolores Huerta is and what she has done to contribute to the labor movement, uh, I would think that it's a great honor, but at the same time, a challenge. Um, kind of talk to us about your, your strategy, your tactic in making sure that we honored the truth. The idea of, of doing a documentary on, on a, you know, a historical segment of the, of the labor union saga in this country was, was daunting, to say the least. Dolores' struggle, it started off as a labor struggle, but it, but it opened up and became also a struggle for racial justice, and then later environmental justice, and then uh, also feminist awareness and consciousness. And, and so when I started to see, wow, oh my God, Dolores lives at the intersection of all these different struggles and issues, to me it, it became something wholly different and very exciting. One of the things you did so well that I don't know if it can be replicated in another human being is <laughs> strategizing with legislators. How does it make you feel, especially to have your story be told during this critical time? Well, I think it's a, an, an important story because uh, if you consider that you had the, the poorest of the poor farm workers take on the, the strongest corporations in California, agribusiness, and the President of the United States, Richard Nixon, and the Governor of California, Ronald Reagan, and were able to overcome that. And the message is so clear that people do have the power, but you've got to work it and you've got to go out there and organize it. You know, we actually can do it, but we've got to get engaged and we've got to take actions. I think this is a big thing that we're missing in our countries that people don't understand that you've got to use the electoral system to make the changes. It's not going to happen just by marching. It's not going to happen by protesting. You've got to get down there and you've got to vote. And we've got to support good people. Peter, I wanted to throw a question back at you in directing this film. And I think you did a beautiful job addressing gender inequity and you know how Dolores was, was treated during the time even within the, own, uh, the movement in itself. And then weaving in the messages of, of, you know, these stories of people of color and women being erased, what were your emotions having to, to see your subject go through such inequity as she's fighting for all of her rights? Right. I, I don't think any filmmaker, who, you know, who spends years and years on a project 
can, cannot be affected or changed by the subject or the material they're working on. And that sense of being an outsider is being reinforced today, whether you know, you're someone of color or a woman or someone who can't get education or someone who, who may be gay. And that, that feeling of you're not entitled or you don't belong even though you're from here because, because we, you know, we have the podium and we're true Americans and we're taking back our country. And so you kind of feel like, oh, there, there's a, there was a, a archive that we came across. And when I heard it, it, I got emotional because Dolores articulated something that I have felt all my life and I know other people have felt, but I had never, never heard anyone like articulate it and put it into words. So we put it in the film. And she talks about how, you know, her grandfather, her great-grandfather fought in the Civil War on the Union side. Her, her father was in the military, her brothers, and she, you know, she's an American, an American girl. And she grew up thinking, you know, democracy is incredible. You know, we exercise our right to vote. We're heard. We make changes. And she has this realization when, when farm workers are killed that the system is not, is not meant to allow certain people, certain communities to have power. And then, she, and then she follows up with this line, and I realized I will never be an American. Mm. It, it, like when I heard that line, you know, that just resonated with me on such a personal level. And I think that resonates with, with a lot of people who feel like an outsider. And people are being felt to, to feel that way again, you know, right. 50 years later. Don't go away when we come back. Our discussion with Dolores Huerta and Peter Bratt. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit idkevents.com for all your event production needs. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Let's continue our discussion with Dolores Huerta and Peter Bratt. 
I feel like now there are so many communities and different types of movements. Mm-hmm. I was just telling you right before the break, there's a line in the documentary by Gloria Steinem who touches on how social movements may accidentally create these divisive environments mm-hmm. because of racism and mm-hmm. or you know sexism and things mm-hmm. like that. I, what would you like to say to that? Because I think that we need to learn from someone like you that you know we can't repeat those mm-hmm. mistakes, and I think it's a critical time to come together. Well, I think one of the things that really affects us, uh, uh, persons of color, in terms of integrating into the other movements, is that we uh, always think that we have to be invited. And I think that the, our, our traditions say, uh, don't go anywhere unless you're invited. And unfortunately, that holds us back because the one thing my mother always told me is don't wait to be invited. If you think that you should be somewhere, you, you just go there, even if you feel a little awkward or embarrassed. And so sometimes, you know, and I, I remember being at a NOW conference once, and I looked at the room, and I was a speaker, and I said, this a convention should be suspended until we can go out there and bring in more women of color. And they did. Yeah. They actually did, and you know, after that, they just made it a point. Uh, and I said, and don't just don't think that you, if you just put an announcement out there to say, oh yeah, we want you to come to our our meeting, you have to actually go out there and bring them in. You know, don't think you're just going to make an announcement and compute. Because unfortunately, that's our tradition that we have to just go out there and and you know we have to come and we have to be pulled in. Uh, and it isn't that people don't want to participate, but unless you know we actually go out, do the outreach and bring them in, people will not come. So I was, you know, get this thing in my my head, like, well, but I'm queer, so maybe they they won't want me there. Mm-hmm. But I've got to invite myself. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that's only that's one part of it. The other yeah. part of it is we have to acknowledge historically, and it's, a lot of this is still going on, right. that there are barriers, real barriers, and a, and a lot of them are around race. Oh. Uh, when we did La Mission, you know, I, I I talked to so many queers of color. And they were talking about how they were in a no man's land. You know, there was homophobia in the Latino community. They didn't feel welcome. And at the same time, they would walk up to the castle right next to the mission district and, and feel like they weren't completely welcome there because it was, it was a white world and it was a white middle class world. And so kind of feeling like, you know, where do I belong? Where do I fit in? And so I do think we have to address sometimes the elephant in the, world, uh, the room, which can be uncomfortable. But those, those barriers do exist, and I think acknowledging them and then working to take them down and then also doing our part to show up. And yeah, and I think we have to do, we have to educate people, you know, because they don't know our world, they don't walk in our shoes. And, uh, and I know, I'm sure Peter and myself, probably you, every single day, every single day we face an incident of racism. And so it's something that we have to live with. But then at the same time, I think we have to use those incidents uh, to educate the people that are offending us, you know, if we can have time to do it, sometimes you can't get here rushing around. Uh, but it is uh, like in the film, it's, it's endemic in our society. And we just got to start putting a lot of pressure on all of the corporations, on all of the uh, private and public organizations that we've got to start fighting all of these ex- isms, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because this country is sick. In this country, we can see by the election of Donald Trump that this based on a huge ignorance in our society. And so we really got to make sure and start putting pressure on everybody. Okay, everybody has a responsibility. And as the Black Panthers used to say, 
If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Who do you want to come out and see the film? In this current political climate, it is crucial to, to see and hear stories and examples like Dolores's. I mean, I feel like we're, we're just moving backward in so many ways. And, you know, as a parent, as a father, you know, that scares the hell out of me, mm -hmm. you know? And so um, I, I think it is ignorance, but I also see people using the tools of fear. You know, they're, they're making other people afraid of certain groups. And, and I, I think one of the things, like who controls the narrative? Who, whose story is, is the American story? Well, it's all, it's all of our story. And so I think what you see in Dolores' story is like, there's, there are these incredible rich histories that help make us and bring us to where we are today as, as a people, as a country. And, and there's nothing to fear about including those in the canon. Mm -hmm. And so this whole idea that, that diversity is something to be afraid of, it, we have to get rid of that. If you look at the natural world, diversity in the natural world is a sign that life is thriving. As this film is coming out and we're, we're fearing, you know, what, what, what could happen with the progress that you've made, the work that you've done, can these structures, can this system that you have fought your entire life, can it ever change to include us? Oh, it, yeah, it will change, but again, it has to come from the bottom up. We've seen it in California. Uh, where things are actually changing, maybe except in the Central Valley where we work, because that's kind of like Alabama and Mississippi, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know. But I mean, we can see in the other parts of of the, of the state where things are changing, and of course in the East Coast also. Uh, so it's all a matter of just getting people, you know, engaged, getting them to vote, understanding that they can actually make the changes, and that's what we want the message of the film to be. We should end on that note. Your line as President Obama corrected himself, si se puede, right? Si se puede, that's it. <laughs> yes, we can. And, that, and the thing about si se puede that's powerful, because it just doesn't mean, yes, I can. It means all of us together. Thank you, Dolores, and thank you, Peter, for this great gift, Dolores. This documentary should be a reminder to all of us of how we can continue the fight and how we can resist. Don't go away when we come back. Quentin Lee and his new project, Gay Hollywood Dad. Thank you, Dolores. What an inspiration. Just a few things I want to bring up, and I'm sure here on Progressive Voices Network, a lot of people have already brought it up, but just in case you didn't hear it, DACA is valid until the expiration date. So the president did announce the end of the program yesterday. What that means is your work permits or the employment authoriz authorization documents will remain valid until its expiration date. So you can determine your DACA and work permit expiration date by looking at your I-79 approval notice and the bottom of your employment authorization document. At this time, no new DACA applications will be accepted. So no one can apply under the DACA program as of yesterday, September 5th. DACA issuances and work permits uh, that expire between now and March 5th have to you have to submit a renewal by October 5th, 2017. So if you have a permit that will expire between now and March 5th of 2018, you must apply for a two-year renewal of your DACA by October 5th, 2017. Advanced parole to travel abroad for any DACA recipient is no longer available. So if you don't have advanced parole or uh, you just applied for one and it's still pending, 
they're no longer issuing it, so you will not be granted to travel abroad. And they also will refund any associated fees for anybody who has applied and your application has not been approved. I think the most important thing to remember is that you're not alone. If you're a dreamer or somebody that might be impacted by the end of DACA, there are a lot of people out there. There are also a lot of organizations and people mobilizing to fight against this decision. If you are in fear or have a lot of questions about your current status, I think that speaking to your immigration attorney is a must or speaking to some attorney. One website that people are promoting uh, is weareheretostay.com that has resources to help people talk about uh, what's going on. Also, just find information or what you can do to take action now. So not only figure out what your situation is, but also how to fight against this decision. Earlier when we spoke to Will Draybold of Mike.com, he mentioned that it is you know pretty early to tell. So we don't know what's going to happen yet. I would say keep up the uh, the protesting, make the noise. If more and more people come out and talk about um, how they denounced this decision, that it was a horrible decision, we start, you know, to to be active in explaining to people how it will negatively impact our country. Maybe the president will listen. Maybe Congress will listen. Uh, point is, there's just still a lot of work to do. As we start to wrap up the show, I want to play an interview uh, or a short clip that we did with Maria Zamudio, who was a dreamer um, and recently was able to marry her partner. And so let's hear her talk about identifying as undocumented and queer. Our next guest is Maria Zamudio, who is a longtime activist advocate and uh, organizer in all things human rights. She's a housing rights activist and also does a lot of fighting for the undocumented community. She is with the Center for Story-Based Strategy and she's here to tell us about what it means to define as queer, undocumented, and Latina. So you're undocumented and you have been fighting for immigrant rights since high school. What What does identifying as undocumented actually mean? Um, that's such an interesting question because I've never really thought about being undocumented as, or like defined that identity for myself. Um, and I think it's, it's both highly personal and also highly bureaucratic. So for me, it's about, um, being undocumented and knowing, you know, from like a really pivotal age in high school and when I was trying to apply for colleges and get in that there was this huge, um, kind of roadblock that I was going to have to figure out. Um, And I've also worked really hard to have it not totally define my existence, right? So it is just about, I don't have some documentation that the U.S. requires. It's both shaped the way that I see the world and how I move through it, and it's also a piece of, it's really, you know, it's a piece of paper. Tell us your personal story of, you know, growing up here um, in California, yeah. undocumented, mm-hmm. what that was like for you, and maybe what were some roadblocks or yeah. whatever you can remember that may have prevented you from growing. Sure. Um, so growing up in California, I grew up in the 90s, um, and it, I lived a pretty regular 90s kid life, except for that I had these things that I knew, right? Like I knew my parents could get in trouble, um, and we needed to 
like the whole family needed to be. Um, like I couldn't really talk about where I was from or how we got mm. here. Um, and you know, my mom was like, never tell anybody that we don't have papers, like never do it. It's really unsafe. And then when I was in high school, trying to apply for colleges, trying to apply for financial aid, um, that's really when it became real because I needed to figure out how to pay for a university. I needed to figure out how I was going to even be accepted into universities. And so I talked to my high school counselor and I've always been really grateful for her because she was really supportive. And I wasn't the only undocumented kid in my high school. I just thought I was because we didn't talk to each other. Um, but she actually brought us together and was like, okay, this pack of you, we're gonna figure this out together. Um, and I got some incredible um, scholarships and I got some incredible support from community members and yeah, you know, it made, made it happen. Talk to us about, you know, what activism looked like for you for fighting for immigrant rights sure. since high school. I mean, the yeah. environment has changed mm -hmm. drastically and mm -hmm. I would say it's gone back and forth, yeah. you know, and some, uh, periods of time it seemed as if we were progressing as a country uh, as far as uh, you know accepts uh, acceptance and tolerance and and now we're at a place where it's just all over the place mm -hmm. it's chaos mm -hmm. yeah when I I mean when I, I was in high school um, when Bush was still president right so when I first started organizing it was around trying to fa um, pass comprehensive immigration reform at the national level and we still don't right and so I do remember that was a moment where I was like well I need to focus on what's happening here in my in my neighborhood, in my city. Um, and I started um, organizing with other undocumented students as well. And then doing work with undocumented youth also meant I did work with undocumented families and parents. Um, and working with undocumented adults, them being undocumented and them trying to get to college, like that's not their issue, right? Mm -hmm. Like their issue is, um, I'm getting my wages stolen by my boss or I'm getting evicted from my house or we don't have enough public transit system and I can't drive so I can't get to work and I'm getting fired and I'm not being able to support my family. So um, I think that's when I started doing the work with like the broader undocumented community and really started kind of acknowledging and seeing that like being undocumented and doing kind of this one thing, like trying to go to college, um, that wasn't the issue. Um, that we needed to continuously be working on, and it was actually a much broader issue about like economic justice and um, and like inherent like universal human rights that folks right. need to have. Right. Which I'm, I'm thankful that you bring up universal healthcare, all this stuff that is actually universal, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it uh, intersects with other communities who yeah. want the same thing. Yeah. You also identify as LGBTQ, mm -hmm. so. When we say you know things like intersections, you understand that very well. Yeah. Why is it so important to acknowledge uh, intersectionality as well as you know the different identities that we have that we're not all compartmentalized uh -huh. or, or into one thing? Yeah, um, yeah. I, I identify as queer, and actually, my queerness and my understanding of my undocumented status all kind of came at the same time, right? Like, I'm a junior, sophomore in high school, and all of a sudden, it's like my world is exploding. I'm like, I can't go to college. <laughs> I like girls. Like things are just all confusing. Um, and so for me, both of these identities have actually grown together and been, um, and, and have developed together. And the reason why it's so important for us to intersect is because it is able, like holding our whole complexities and being able to hold our own and others' complexities ensures that we're actually able to be in true solidarity and community with each other and develop the solutions that will truly lift all boats.
What are some things that you'd like to say regarding the current environment for the undocumented community, especially undocumented youths and undocu-queers, yeah. undocumented LGBTQ youths? Um, I think that I'd like to acknowledge how scary it is, right? Like, it is scary. Um, but we also are incredibly resilient communities. Immigrant communities have learned to flourish in hardship, um, and queer communities have learned to find joy and beauty and community in, in hardship as well. And so to not let the circumstances become our existence, right? So it's like we're in, it's a, it's, we're in a tough moment, um, but we also have an incredible amount of tools, an incredible amount of training, and there's a ton of leaders right now, right? So there are queer undocumented people, there are queer Latinos, queer black folks, um, undocumented black folks, undocumented um, API folks that are actually like leading so many of those, of those fights, so we're everywhere. Thank you, Maria. Thank you so much for all that you do. And again, for having the courage to speak up about these issues that impact all of our communities. Thank you again for joining us here on the program. If you would like to chime in or, or join us on the conversation, you could head to michellemeow.com to let me know. Dolores opens up this weekend in the Bay Area. The documentary has opened up in other cities. So if you're interested in seeing the documentary, Head to DoloresTheMovie.com to find out how you can watch it. I'm going to play the trailer for those who uh, have not heard it. <laughs> or you can see it by going to DoloresTheMovie.com. Here's the trailer. Dolores is an icon. She's a civil rights hero. She's the first general that I followed in the war. She's not afraid to speak truth to power. Dolores Huerta, who is an old friend of mine. And the FBI knew how dangerous Dolores was. Dolores came up with the slogan, Si se puede. Yes, we can. You were a young girl growing up in America in the 40s. You must have had a dream. After I had seen the miserable conditions of farm workers, Cesar Chavez said, we have to organize a union. You had this ambience all around you that you could really change the world. It was beyond question the largest gathering on behalf of farm workers in California history. I wish they'd all go back to where they came from. We had no labor troubles. She wasn't asking for permission. She just did what needed to be done. She has such a firm belief in what she's doing. We've never given up. That she infects you with it. Dolores Huerta. 90,000 people were poisoned in the fields of the United States of America. The farm workers founded the whole idea of environmental justice. Men were threatened by her power. She's a very volatile individual. She's an insult. People wanted to see her in a more traditional role. I left a couple of my children behind. That's part of the sacrifice that we made and that we had to make. And it still pains me when I think about it. People in power have no idea of the true heroes of this country. I would not have been able to see what's hidden in the fields of our country without Dolores. We're in knee deep in sexism when it comes to why she isn't studied and why people don't know her. Latina girls need to see statues of you. We really kind of set the record straight. I mean, women cannot be written out of history.
That was the trailer. Again, if you want to see it instead of just listening to it here on Progressive Voices Network, you can head to DoloresTheMovie.com. Make sure you see it. I, I, I really, 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 really think all activists uh, need to see this documentary. For all the dreamers out there, we stand with you. The This is just the beginning of the fight, and we're going to keep talking about it in this way until this administration listens to us. Thank you so much for joining us here on this program. We'll be back tomorrow at the same time, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. For everything else, you can head to michellemeow.com.